What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is writer, singer, and organizer for Black freedom and the freedom of political prisoners, Yane Indigo. Thank you for joining us today, Yane. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. I know you've been a committed political organizer and especially focused on freeing political prisoners, and I'm excited to build into that part of the conversation, but you're also an artist and you've just released your very first song. Yes, sir. I want to start from the bare basics. Let's talk about your artistic process. When was the first time like in your entire life that you felt really inspired by art and music? And what was what was that and how were you exposed to it? When I was six in first grade in elementary school, we got an assignment to write about a ruler and I enjoyed that so much. It was just one sentence. Um, and then I had to draw a ruler and I drew the ruler with the half mark, quarter mark, eighth mark, 16th marks, all the way along it. And I just enjoyed the sentence writing so much that that was like, that I always remembered it. And I feel like that's when I first kind of realized that I loved writing and loved working with words. Um, then my neighbor, my grandmother's neighbor, actually, um, my, both my grandparents' homes were my homes. And my grandmother, one of my grandparents' neighbors, Miss Frazier, gave my sister and I a book called Listen Children. It was a book of poems and short stories and essays um, written by Black authors and geared towards a young Black audience. And I consumed that book. I memorized pieces of that book. And when I was eight, um, I would enter the talent show and performed one of the pieces way down in the music. At that time, I also had started writing my first, my own poetry. Um, it occurred to me when I saw, I, I was going through my mom's books. I saw some cute notebooks and I looked in them and I saw poems in there that my mother had written. And that's when it occurred to me really that I could write poems and I wrote my first poem called Black Beauty um, and um, entered that into a contest when I was 10 at a school um, for students that were, I was competing against kids all the way through seniors and I won the writing contest and that locked in for me that I had something, that, a talent with writing um, and the performance when I was eight also like really locked in my love for performance and those things kind of like fused my beginning as an artist. You mentioned your finding your mom's old poetry. I'm wondering if you had other artistic guides as as a young person exploring this. It was it sounds like a really cool opportunity also when you entered that competition. But who else were you looking up to or maybe having the opportunity to work with? Well, I really read predominantly black literature. I wrote poetry but I read fiction. And so I was reading Toni Morrison, Richard Wright, Alice Walker, 
Um, and I was reading them really early. So when a lot of people were reading like Judy Bloom, I was reading these authors. And I started reading these authors when um, I was probably in about third grade. And um, so by the time I went to fifth grade, there the teachers were actually, and they, they were same way, they were the same way with my sister, concerned that I was reading this literature. They thought it maybe was too old, um, too mature. For me, but I have been reading um, James Baldwin. I've been reading those these kinds of authors um, for years. By that point, um, and then I did not actually think that I liked anyone's poetry but my own until I reached high school. Um, even though I had that book, Listen Children, that became kind of a bit of a background for a while. And then when I went, I, I said high school, I meant to university. When I went to university, I met Sonia Sanchez. Mm. And Sonia Sanchez opened my world up to poetry that resonated with me and that I loved because in school we were being introduced to poetry, but not poetry that I cl connected with. And so Sonia Sanchez really... Um, taught me a lot about, because um, I, I was introduced to her directly, like I worked with Sonia Sanchez, I actually got an MFA in writing and literature, and Sonia was one of the people who wrote my, um, one of my letters of recommendation. So I had a, um, you know, a relationship with Sonia Sanchez, because she's such a generous, loving person, and who shares herself so much with so many. And, um, and so she actually helped me to expand both my um, understanding of writing, my discipline as a writer, um, and to strengthen my own personal writing and also to be expanded in the literature that I was exposed to by others and what I was able to consume. So you've mentioned Sonia Sanchez, you mentioned James Baldwin, you've mentioned Toni Morrison, folks certainly who have had their hand on the pulse of cultural work and and much of which is focused on black culture you're also a political organizer and activist focused on political prisoners and issues in the black community i'm wondering if you could talk we we learned a little bit about your introduction to artwork and your introduction to poetry and that work with sonia sanchez i'm wondering if you can what's the parallel track that you were introduced to political work side of things? So I began to be, feel compelled to transform reality when I was pretty young also. And I saw that there were children that were hungry um, through those videos that they would share in the seventies about Ethiopian children and you know, that really struck me as it was intended to. And um, and then I began to see other things. You know, we walk through the cities and we see people um, on, sleeping on streets and being hungry. And I had no capacity to accept that and felt very compelled to figure out how to make that different. Then I went through just a series of um, community-oriented um, activities and through those activities learned more and more about how systemic things were. And, you know, so I went through like different kinds of volunteer projects and things, and then some early nonprofit work 
first working with young people, at-risk children, when I was still pretty young myself, and then beginning to work with some adults, um, older adults and young adults and families. And I could see the systemic work, and that began to kind of drive me in some other directions. Um, I did I did do some political work, some elected electoral politics work as well, and began to see the um, the 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 uh, un, the way that that is also um, just not productive. Um, and so um, I over time began to be introduced to revolutionaries. Um, and began to find revolutionaries. I've actually for a long time felt alone in the ways that I um, perceived that the world should be and the work that was needed to um, accomplish that work. I would see the work of people who were um, had been had been assassinated, you know, like Malcolm, like um, Fred Ham Chairman Fred Hampton, you know, like George Jackson, but I did not know where the people were who had that same spirit and were alive today. And it took me some time to find those individuals. And when I found them, I just dove right into doing that kind of work while also working to build things that inspired me around what the alternative could be that we could build together in the now, not just focusing on what it is that we want to remove and eradicate from our lives, but also what we want to build into our lives, into the lives of each other. You said it took you a while to find those folks and find those groups that are doing that work now. I'm wondering, I, I, we will get back to the music and the poetry in just a minute, but I'm wondering if you can bring us all the way in. What were some of those groups and what was some of the work that they were doing? So it's, for me, it started out, um, I was just trying to trying to start volunteer programs, trying to get people into schools and, and having a hard time getting connected with getting folks to get invested. But then I did. And then I would do kind of local work, trying to do transformative work at the local level. And I then I was hearing about, um, like, so I, I had been introduced to the UNIA in Philadelphia, but it wasn't very active. And that was when I was younger, more like in my teenage years. Um, I was seeing what people were doing in the streets every once in a while. I would get connected. So there was a group called Philly for Real Justice that was doing some work in the streets that really resonated with me. And um, But I, I couldn't figure out how to keep like stay connected to them. So I would join some marches and some rallies. But the on-ramping was not as solid as, um, and, and some of that is also because people don't know who they can trust, right? But the on-ramping wasn't easy. I would also see things about Mumia, but I didn't know how to actually, because social media wasn't a, as present then, I didn't know how to actually find things that I was seeing and getting connected to them. The first group that I actually got connected with like that was Black Lives Matter. And it started actually in LA, which is ironic because I don't rock with them at all now. Um, but then I connected with the chapter in Philadelphia and I do still rock with the chapter in Philadelphia and many chapters um, from Black Lives Matter. I also got connected with the Black Alliance for Peace um, through working with the um, Green Party briefly and connected with Ajumu. 
um, and help build the Black Alliance for Peace. And um, and then um, during the rebellion summer of 2020, um, helped to formulate the Black Philly Radical Collective in Philadelphia. Um, and through um, a lot of that was also building Ubuntu freedom with folks. And, um, and that was, um, again, like that shift of focusing on what we want to have, the life we want and how we build and systematize that while also doing this other work that is um, breaking down the um, forces of oppression both at the local level and at the international level. I also worked with a group called the Pan-African Activist Solidarity Network, which is with people, organizers. While 20, Rebellion 2020 was happening, we may remember the NSARS um, movement was happening in Nigeria. We wanted to connect with those organizers and be able to share what we know, just like we learned a lot from the Palestinian struggle and have that strong effort of solidarity. And so we worked with um, the Nigerians and then with Ugandans and, um, you know, we're working with organizers um, across the continent right now, looking at what's happening in Niger, um, looking at what's happening in Haiti and just building solidarity, both through the Black Alliance for Peace, through the Pan-African Activist Solidarity Network, which there are people who cross into both of those um, organizing communities. And then anytime you're doing revolutionary work, you just have to also fight for the people who have been targeted by the state through incarceration. And so I work on campaigns like that of Mumia Abu-Jamal, supported Mutulu Shakur, you know, our new revolutionary ancestor, you know, long live Mutulu, um, Kamal Siddiqui, um, Imam Jamil Alamin. These are amongst the people who I name. Um, Rochelle McGee is now home, you know, so we have to keep doing that work. And so that work is um, also work that I will be involved in until all of our people are are able to be brought home. Well, and since we're on the topic, it is August. It is Black August. I'm wondering, you've been so involved in the fight to free political prisoners and you just mentioned a lot of, of the names of folks who've been freed recently and, and the folks whose campaigns you're working on. You also mentioned Mumia's name. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the importance of Black August. And I we will get back to your art and your song um, in just a minute. But I think because it is August, it's important to talk about the perspective of Black August and, and why... Uh, organizing efforts are being so focused around political prisoners and freeing those folks who've been locked up in our freedom movements for such a long time. Yeah. So I, there's no separation for me between my art and my movement work. So when we're talking about the movement work, we're talking about my song. So there's no problem with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and when, um, and, and vice versa. Of course, when we're talking about the song, we're talking about the movement. Um, Black August is really important um, because it is um, an uncompromising, an uncompromisingly revolutionary holiday, if you want to use that term. But it is a, a time that was initiated um, from within the prisons um, in honoring or in honor of the revolutionaries who were 
in prison and assassinated in the prisons, um, George Jackson, his brother, Jonathan Jackson, it also honors him, even though he was not in the prison, but he was working to free prisoners being radicalized and revolutionized by what happened to his brother, um, George. And, um, and it's a time of discipline. It's a time when we, um, we work on our bodies, we work on our minds. So we do study, we, um, we fast, we, um, we work out, and, um, and we deepen our revolutionary understanding and analysis. And that's how we honor ourselves through honoring our revolutionaries who made the ultimate sacrifices, um, allow, not, not, I won't say allowing, but being um, incarcerated, being captured by our oppressors, and then not, tra not lim lowering their revolutionary um, stance, not lowering their revolutionary commitment, but in deepening their revolutionary commitment um, and, and facing off the oppressor until the oppressor had to either um, to either give in or assassinate them. And those were the only options that freedom is what would be had and that they would demonstrate and model the courage to not be willing to sacrifice or back down um, from the right to be free um, and to be free collectively, not as individuals. And um, so Black August really is an important time to um, for us to reinforce that understanding and to be inspired, um, but not only be inspired, but to be better informed, better educated so that we can more effectively accomplish that kind of collective freedom that is the only real freedom to be had. Well, and I also just want to mention, because it's kind of on the tips of our tongues right now, Rochelle McGee was just freed on what they call compassionate release. And what that means is that um, he was the longest held political prisoner in the U.S. It means the prison system has decided that he's physically unable to commit crimes. Right. Compassionate release basically means they will allow him to die outside of the prison cell it's not acceptable yeah I, I i wanted your perspective on that idea i mean they do they call it compassionate i don't personally think of it as compassionate but i wanted your perspective because that's been the case for quite a few political prisoner releases in the past handful of years that's the case for rochelle it's the case for dr mutulu shakur it's the case for you know um russell maroon schultz i'm wondering if you can just give some uh perspective on on that compassionate release policy well so you know the the thing is that we have to think about things from our own perspective right not from the perspective of the state this is actually one of the topics that we were talking about when we were um, doing the black august power hour which is a um, collective study uh, group that happens virtually. And we, this year, are focusing on Malcolm's and Malcolm's teachings. And that's one of the things that he talked about is that we cannot use the framework of the state, the, the very group that oppresses us, to um, and, 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 and be guided by that framework when we're deciding what we do. And, and we also can't when we decide what's acceptable. And them consistently releasing 
our revolutionaries who stood for what is right and what is righteous for all people, not just black people, we cannot accept that they keep them in prison until they're dying. And then that those individuals get such short periods of time before they actually transition um, in their, in, in their to, to the state essentially saying, the state is essentially saying that they have their ability to wage revolution has become benign and impotent. We need their revolutionary spirits and they deserve to come home well before they're dying. So yes, we have some examples, you know, quite a number of examples of individuals who have been able to come home and, and be able to live and thrive and have years of life as we expect for Sundiata, as we saw for Jalil, as we see for Herman, um, you know, as we see for King, um, Albert Wolfbach got to live for some time. But we also have, as you named, Maroon, Mutulu. Um, we had, um, now Rochelle is coming out sick. We had also Chucky Africa. We had, um, we had um, so many, this we can't, we can't allow that we feel like it's a victory for people to come home to die. It's good that they're not being um, like, like Maroon, they would have, they were starving him to death. They intended to keep him in and feed him through a tube saline when he needed to be fed nutrients so that he would suffer and starve to death surrounded by people who hate him. And at least we were able to get him home surrounded by people who love and respect and appreciate him. And, um, and then from there, for him to be able to make the transition with more peace and with dignity. However, it's not sufficient. We need all of our political prisoners to come home now and to come home with health and with some time, because we're talking about people being in prison for 40 and 50 years, and only because they were willing to stand up for our right to have dignity, life, and freedom as a collective community, and the right to exact consequences for people who are being violent against our community in order to maintain the hegemony that they have over us, which is absolutely not acceptable either. That's right. That's right. So I know we talked about earlier how where you can't distinguish your artistic work from the political work. It is one and the same. But you did just release a brand new song, a music single. And I want to transition to talking directly about it. It's as far as I understand your first release song. Congratulations. Thank you. It's absolutely it's super bold. It's fiery. It's provocative. It sounds like you're trying to get people into the streets and get people hype. We're going to listen to some of that a little bit later. But I'm wondering if you can talk about that song. Where did it come from for you? What was the writing process like? And I guess where in your wildest dreams do you hope that it would be heard? So the the writing process for me was that I wanted to write a song for the movement that embodied the energy of 2020 and the 2020 rebellion at its peak. And, um, and that also represented um, what I think many would consider my role in mobilizations. And so, you know, we have 
these um, these kind of ideas of like mobilizers and organizers. And sometimes people are both. But when you mobilize, that's when you have all the people in the streets getting them going. Right. Getting them. You know, that's the rallies, the protests, those are mobilizations. And then the organizing is what happens in between. And it's not obviously just organizing for more mobilizations and for more rallies and protests, but it's actually organizing towards our collective freedom and those things that we deserve in our human rights. And when I'm involved in these rallies and these protests, my role is to get the fire up in the bellies of the people and inspire people to go out on the streets, but also to take that energy back into their lives to determine that nothing but our collective freedom is acceptable and that every one of us has a responsibility to engage in whatever activities are required strategically, intelligently, but with no um, limitations to what is our rights in order to obtain the freedom and the, um, the realization of our rights as living creatures that belong to us. So that was the goal of the song when I put it together was to, to stand in that role, whether I'm at the rally or not, and to um, and to put that fire in the belly of people so that um, if there is a rally, if there is a protest, if there is a moment that people need inspiration in order to overcome fear in a moment and to strike in the way that is necessary in order to get what we deserve, that this can be a tool to actually light that fire and have people overcome whatever their trepidations may be. Well, it is quite the song. I'm excited to be sharing it with our KPFA listeners. And um, we are going to have to wrap up. We're just about out of time. But I wanted to end on this note. You've touched on this part of the conversation quite a few times. And maybe it's in your work with political prisoners. Maybe it's in your work with Ubuntu Freedom. Maybe it's in your artistic work. Maybe it's all of the above. But I want to ask in art, in politics, in, in that intersection, where do you find hope and what brings you a sense that we really can inch toward freedom? You know, it's ironic. I was talking about this with someone because we were talking about how there's the, there, was, there was someone who um, was engaging in like this capitalistic way. And, um, and I was talking about that. I don't feel like they are aligned with the revolution and they were, and, um, and someone was saying, I think that they believe that we should turn the system, but they don't believe that we can. And, you know, my response to that and thinking is it doesn't matter. Like you don't, what's right is what's right. And for me, like, it doesn't even matter. Like sometimes I have hope and sometimes I don't. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to fall back on standing in alignment with what is right. And it is not right for the government to be dropping bombs on people like they did on Move in Philadelphia or on people in other countries like they do all across, especially black and brown countries across the African continent or anyone who will go against whatever it is that is in the best interest of the select few who are in the ruling class at the moment. So I think that 
you know, that's that's one part of it. But when I am having hope, it's actually the connections that I have with people. It's like when I'm when I'm actually doing the work, there's there's this idea, I think, that if you're in the movement, that you have to be angry and upset all the time. And people don't realize how much fun we actually have and how how deep the connections that we build make and how meaningful the work that we do is. And then that meaningful work actually deepens those connections and how that cycles around this meaningful work and these deep connections with people who are willing to do all of this work that's completely sacrificial and for others and and for the collective. But there's nothing that really can feel better than that. I mean, there's selfishness out there and people can feel great about being on top of things by themselves. But that's those people, they, they must not have actually really dealt with and engaged in what it feels like to be really part of a collective and to be a powerful contributor to collective work and collective struggle. That feels amazing in and of itself. When I walk and I see a person struggling, if I see a person on a street who's hungry and it should not be unhoused, the thing that enables me to be sane and to even handle it at all is the fact that I know how much work I'm doing to transform that. And so whether it happens in my lifetime as I intend it to or not, but even if you don't believe it can happen in this lifetime, your own sanity and the the health of your spirit is completely, completely dependent on that. And so, you know, that's where I stand. Long live Mutulu, long live Delbert Africa, long live Long live Chucky Africa, long live Maroon, long live George Jackson, long live Jonathan Jackson, long live all of our revolutionaries. May we all stand um, on their shoulders and, and follow their example. That is a bar, and we're going to have to leave it there, Yane. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, where can people go to follow you and listen to your music? Everything of mine is at Yane Indigo, Y-A-H-N-E-N-D-G-O. So there's yaneindigo.com. I have a link tree. All right. Thank you so much. You are listening to Law and Disorder, and this has been Resistance in Residence with this week's featured artist, writer, singer, and organizer for Black Freedom and Freedom of Political Prisoners, Yane Indigo. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.